Episode 41, Eight Possible Ways Jesus Could Save the United States of America. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been weeks since I posted an episode. I've been very busy. A lot's been going on. And uh, so I'm anxious to get back at it. Uh, For those of you who may be wondering if you've happened to notice, episode 40 uh, came and went. I took it down after uh, I think about 16 people had listened to it. Um, Upon further review, it just it needs further treatment than it got. This was the Harry Potter episode about how um, Harry discovered a whole life that he didn't didn't know existed and about how uh, a lot of Christians, I think, fail to discover the kind of life and the richness of life that Jesus had in mind for them, even though they're in churches and such. Well, that theme was a a really good theme, and I think it deserves a better treatment than what I gave it, including the fact that uh, I think it deserves to be better edited and uh, not as repetitive as I got, but also it deserves a lot more of the positive end of uh, what all life should be like and not uh, as much of the negative uh, sort of fussing that I got into. So all, all of these things considered, I took it down and hopefully I'll uh, rework that at some time in the future. So the spot uh, number 40 has been retired and now we're at number 41 on the episodes. And uh, today is about uh, eight possible ways that Jesus could save the United States of America. Now, <clears throat> Uh, hardly anybody that I know thinks things are going great in the United States. Uh, some may be hesitant to say they're not, but uh, I don't think anybody thinks they're going excellently. I think that the awareness of corruption is increasing, although it's far beyond or far behind the actual levels of corruption. In fact, I'm convinced myself that there is a great amount of corruption that I don't know about. Uh, it would just make a lot of sense that there is. In fact, I don't, uh, the government doesn't call me to tell me what it's doing. A lot of it is uh, covert things that I'd have no idea going on. Uh, so a lot of people are concerned. A lot are thinking that, you know, the end may be near, uh, that um, civil unrest and uh, rioting in the streets and, and all manner of things like that might happen. Some are looking at World War Three. They're expecting uh, China and some of the other communist nations to gang up against the U.S. Um, So there are concerns about uh, major hacking attacks or or, uh, cyber attacks going on to shut down the Internet and our communications and 
or EMP attacks happening to shut down electricity and uh, communications and travel and all that sort of thing. So who knows what might happen? Uh, I am very concerned about these things. And um, I think those concerns are rational and responsible. It would be easier not to be concerned and just say, ho ti ho ti ho you know, everything's okay. Just going to let my little light shine, you know, and then put my head in the sand sort of thing. And indeed, I'm sure a lot of people do that very thing. <clears throat> but I got to thinking today, or not today, actually over the past few weeks, that a lot of people obviously are in prayer, and they are hoping that God will intervene in some way. Now, it's been my experience, and we've talked about this before, that when somebody says they're praying for our country, uh, they don't often have a very solid idea of exactly what they're praying for. So it may just be some sort of um, some fuzzy, well, uh, God, please make things work out better than they are so far. Well, okay, what exactly are you asking? Uh, do you have in mind the, the particulars of what you're asking God to do or expecting him to do? Or what are the possibilities that he might do based on what we know about uh, what God is like, what Jesus is like? And a lot of times the answer, I think, would be no. It's just a wish. That is, that in those prayers, we're just wishing out loud. Well, along the lines of this whole podcast so far, you know, this theme of uh, uh, give careful thought to your ways, I thought today we'd stop and talk about uh, what I'm sure is an imperfect list, but it is a list of eight possibles that I uh, came up with on things that Jesus might possibly do to save the United States if he um, took a mind to intervene in what goes on here. Now, a lot of people will say, what do you mean if he took a mind? Of course he intervenes. God's behind everything that happens. Well, I find that uh, logically difficult because uh, the, the obvious question and response is, okay, so do you agree that corruption is on the rise in the United States? And the answer would be yes. And then my second question is, okay, so is God behind that? And it gets difficult for somebody to say, well, ye, uh, sure, yeah, he must be. And then I say, okay, why? Since when is God in the corruption business? And it just gets very difficult from there to keep maintaining that position. And so uh, I also <clears throat> would ask, what promise do you have that God will intervene in the affairs of the United States of America? Do you want to go import promises that were made to Israel in Bible times and just assume that God also, oh yeah, he'd say the same thing today to the United States? Well, uh, some do exactly that. I think that that is uh, dubious Bible work. I think it is uh, making a big assumption that we are often not honest enough to be willing to admit that, yes, I'm making this really big assumption. Uh I was just reading today, or actually listening, about Benjamin Franklin and how he learned early on in his life uh, when he's making an assertion about something to uh, temper it with, uh, to flavor it with, if I'm not mistaken, or it seems to me, or if I'm right about this, that sort of thing. And uh, I've recognized for some time that's a good thing to do. I, perhaps you've heard me do it myself. Uh, and I'm sure you've also heard where I did not do that in making some assertion, even some bold ones. Uh, however, 
the idea is that you're always keeping in mind the possibility that you're making a mistake and you're letting your audience know that you believe that possibility exists. <clears throat> so what, uh, what God might do or could possibly do, I came up with eight things. You may come up with more. You may think some of these are ridiculous and perhaps a couple of them are. Uh, so this is really all a big thought experiment. The idea being to get us thinking about uh, what the possibilities are. And I have, again, eight things on my list. Uh, one of them that uh, would many, many people would be asking for is, you know, Maranatha, Lord, come or come quickly <laughs> and just come put an end to like the whole world. However, that works out, you know, in people's doctrines. Well, we'll talk about that um, close to the end of the list. Uh, so that won't be first up, but don't get um, nervous that I'm going to leave that one off. So uh, the first possibility that came to my mind is a Korah-style judgment uh, uh, against the bad guys. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, who was Korah, I'm talking about a story that happens in Numbers. Korah was one of the Israelites uh, in Moses' time, and uh, he became rebellious under the leadership of Moses. Now, Moses was not elected by the people. He was appointed by God. It was a theocracy where God runs the country. And that's different from where a religion or a church runs a country, mind you. This was God himself uh, who was appointing prophets and judges and so forth to lead things in the way he said it should go. So is that what the United States is? Uh, no, we are not a theocracy. We have an, a, a representative government elected by the people uh, to uh, run the central government, which has a you know limited um, limited mission. Although they keep cheating on those limits, and now it's practically unrecognizable from the original government that was formed in 1789 when the Constitution was ratified. Um, actually, in 70 in 88. But it, uh, the government got cranked up in 89 to run. So anyway, with Korah here, he's pushing back against Moses. And it's become pretty obvious. And Moses, of course, is in touch with God. And uh, you don't hear the whole story, but you hear enough of it to know what was going on. And I thought I'd pick just an excerpt from this. I'll read, I don't know, 10 verses maybe from Numbers 16, starting at verse 28. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men, and I'll break in here, he is referring to the, the rebels, Korah and his crew. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them, and everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. And so I'll stop here. Uh, there's a bit more. But uh, he um, he's painting a scenario in which the ground opens up and swallows uh, Korah and his people and all their stuff. So they'd be swallowed alive into the earth. And it says they go down into the realm of the dead. Now, this is a reference to Sheol, which uh, the Greeks later would call Hades, and the New Testament refers to it as Hades because those documents were written in Greek. Uh, 
And so these people went straight away. They didn't die first. Uh, so they went body and soul into Sheol. It's what Moses is setting us up here to expect. Uh, and how uh, good that he said it ahead of time, uh, that makes it even freakier. How in, how in the world could this man know that this thing was about to happen? And I'm foreshadowing, of, of course. Okay, so going on in verse 31. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah, together with their possessions. Then they went down alive, or they went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. And just so you know, we didn't cover this part of the story, but there were uh, those among the priests who were also part of the rebellion. And so a fire comes out from the Lord and consumes the 250 who were offering the uh, incense. And it talks a little bit uh, after this about how they had to clean up the charred remains of the people who were left there. So this is quite an event. This is uh, God um, executing judgment on the living. And this kind of thing does happen uh, somewhat in the Bible. Some of the judgments he executes against Israel, for example, are by way of military uh, you know, invasions and things like that that happened to them. Uh, this one, though, uh, directly on individuals, and they're gone from the face of the earth. And so, uh, well, we have precedent that God or Jesus would execute such a judgment as this. And so could this possibly happen? You know, could, um, and I've often said that uh, if aliens from outer space would come and take away everybody in Washington, D.C. to some other world, never to bring them back, uh, that sure would solve a lot as far as the severity of the corruption that exists. Now, there would be plenty of people left in the States to go to Washington, uh, replacing that original crew, and uh, there's plenty of corruption to be taken there too. But it would take a long time to get it organized again, and some good might actually happen if the first crew were to just disappear. Well, here you have exactly that sort of thing. God clears out... Uh, those who were in opposition to godly things under the law of Moses. Now, uh, this also, uh, I, I don't have to go here, but I'm go going to go here. Uh, this brings to mind 1 Enoch 22. I'm sure we've talked about this before, and I'm referring to the Ethiopic version of uh, 1 Enoch, where it differentiates between the afterlife status of those who were quote, not judged during their lifetime, and those who were. If you recall, there were four places that uh, Enoch was shown in the underworld, and they were for the spirits of the dead. And one place was for the righteous. One was for those who were making suit about the way they had been killed. One was for those who had, quote, not been judged during their lifetime. They were uh, ones who, they were sinners, but had not been judged during their lifetime. And then the last one was for those who had been judged in their lifetime, and they were going to basically go on and be the roommates of Satan eternally in punishment. 
So uh, that was not good. I think that that's what this Korah's uh, judgment was about, that, that God was passing judgment on them during their lives. And so they were going to go down uh, straight away to that section of uh, Sheol. And um, this also, this kind of judgment, we do see it in the New Testament, and a lot of people miss this, but this is the Ananias and Sapphira story uh, from Acts 5, and we've talked about that before on this podcast. Uh, Acts 5, verse 11, great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. So, you know, what was this? Well, this is God, uh, first of all, keeping the church pure, or in, in the first case of Korah, keeping... Um, well, still what they would call the um, the assembly, the synagogue, uh, whatever, the keeping that pure uh, from evil men within their number. So um, this is a thing. God could do this. And so here's a question. Uh, when was the last time God did this? Now, when it happens in the Bible accounts, we are told uh, God was doing this. And it seems, unless I'm just missing something, it seems there's always a prophet involved who's saying, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you know, like even to Ananias, they said, well, you, I forget the exact words, but you're going to drop dead and these men are going to carry you out. And then he did. So uh, this is not just, uh, oh, what curious timing that uh, dude had a heart attack. You know, <laughs> it was, no, it was foretold. And so uh, is that happening today? If so, when was the last time it happened? Uh, who was the prophet who said these things and so forth? Well, uh, I don't know of this happening in the history of the United States. I guarantee you, though, we could find somebody who would claim it has. Uh, but, of course, you can find somebody who will claim all kinds of things. So <laughs> that alone doesn't mean a whole lot. So here's one, one option, you know, that God could perform some kind of real-time judgment against all the bad guys all the tyrants and scoundrels who are in the federal government, uh, those in the state governments who help protect it, who don't um, keep the state's uh, positions as the uh, the United States. And I don't mean this to be, you know, like a civics lesson, mind you, although that wouldn't be a bad thing. So uh, that's number one, a chorus-style uh, judgment against the bad guys. Number two, uh, he could... Uh, in some way, reject the current leaders and appoint leaders of his own. And if you just think about the story of Saul and David, uh, Saul being the first king of Israel, not God's idea. It was the idea of the people. They wanted to have a king where God had no such thing in mind. And the people said, well, we want to be like the other nations around us. Uh, and just a note for you, not a good thing to tell God who had picked you out to be his own nation. <laughs> We want to be like all the others. Yeah, that's a mistake. And so it seems to me God said, okay, fine, here you go. And he picked out just the king they'd want, this uh, tall and handsome guy, Saul, and then mayhem starts from there. So uh, Saul does not seek after God. He is uh, worldly and not godly. And uh, so God rejects Saul and has David appointed uh, well in advance of when David would actually take power, by the way. But, um, 
you know, God could do that. Well, in the United States, when was the last time we had uh, God reject a leader and appoint another in his place? I don't think this has ever happened unless I missed it somehow. Now, some will say, oh, well, it's all in the voting, right? And okay, we'll talk about that later. But uh, the way that he did it then, uh, he sent a prophet to tell Saul he had been uh, rejected. He sent a prophet to tell David he had been uh, chosen. And uh, is is this possible God could do this? Well, sure. But is the United States a theocracy where God appoints the leaders? I'm going to tell you, no, absolutely it is not. Well, many will say, oh, sure, yeah, God appoints the leaders. You know, they'll say this in the churches too. And that sure causes a lot of trouble when the leaders turn out to be ungodly. And, you know, how do you explain that? Why would God put an ungodly? Oh, it's to teach us a lesson. Okay. Uh, Have you learned the lesson yet? You know, so it's just very problematic when you go assigning these things to God, when God doesn't say, hey, I did this. Or when he doesn't send a prophet to say, God's going to do this and here you go. And so I, I think we need to be very careful to be intellectually honest about these things. So number three, uh, he could have, number one, he could have a chorus-style re, uh, judgment of the bad guy leaders. He could uh, reject the current leaders and appoint some of his own. That's number two. And number three, he could send a prophet to expose all the wrongdoing, after which the people will no longer support the wicked government like they do now. And what I mean is that uh, of all the people in the United States government who violate their oath to the Constitution, uh, every single one of them is in office because uh, they were elected to office. Now, I know there's some uh, some serious debate about the integrity of this last election in 2020, and I agree that there was a lot of fraud there, and in fact, fraud that, that made a difference. Uh, however, uh, the idea being that Generally, the United States government enjoys the support of the people of the United States. And so what if all the people would turn on the government and say, no, you're bad guys. Uh, You got to get out, get out, get out, cut it out, quit doing what you're doing. What if the people would expose or not expose them, but uh, oppose them? Well, the idea that God could send a prophet to expose all the wrongdoing. And then after that, the people would finally come to their senses and say, oh, I'm not voting for him anymore. I'm not going to support uh, support the corrupt party anymore and so forth. Um, so I'd written notes to myself here. There are several examples of prophets exposing the wrongdoing of leaders or of nations. And these are biblical examples, I mean. I don't think there's an example in the Bible, however, of a nation turning its back on a leader for this cause. Now, maybe I've missed one, and if I have, uh, please do write me and let me know. You can find the contact page there at um, rethinkingthebible.com. Because Israel was a theocracy, and if God turned on the leader, he generally replaced the leader himself, which is the example we were just looking at with Saul and David. The people weren't free to do this as they saw fit. So um, do we have an example of God doing this kind of thing in Uh, the Bible. Well, no, I don't think we do. Uh, Is it uh, possible that he could? Perhaps. Is it likely? Hmm. Well, based on what? You know, based on what experience would we say this is likely? 
that he would do it. And number four, God could, Jesus could, thwart the plans of the bad guys. If you wanted support for this as some general idea, you could go to Job 5.12 and be careful because this is Eliphaz speaking. This is not Job uh, and his friends. You have to be really careful about what they say because they are less likely to be right than Job was. But uh, Job 5.12, Eliphaz says, He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Or you could go to Psalm 33. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. So you could go to that one and say, yeah, see, look, it's right in a psalm. It's, it's stated as a generalism. Um, you could. Or you could go to Isaiah 8, verse 10. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. And I wrote the note to myself, but is God thwarting evil plans in the United States today? If so, then how is so much evil happening? Many here will, of course, uh, appeal to mystery. Well, it's a mystery, bro. <laughs> like, okay, but you're so certain of it. Oh, yeah, God's going to thwart the plans of these bad guys. Well, he hasn't so far, right? Do you understand that in the uh, Constitutional Convention that happened in 1787, for four months in the summer, starting in late May in Philadelphia. Uh, in that convention, they specifically discussed uh, how to run things in the United States. And one of the questions was whether this federal court, this Supreme Court, would have the power to strike down state laws. And the answer after much debate was an emphatic no, no way. The states wanted to preserve their own uh, sovereignty, uh, only giving up what needed to be done for a limited central government to happen. Okay, so um, they said, no way. The federal government cannot do this. The Supreme Court has no power over state law. So that would have meant you could have had a law in your state against selling snow cones and they couldn't do anything about it. Or you could have had a law uh, demanding that everyone sell snow cones in your state and they couldn't do anything about it. But in 1789, in the first Congress of the United States, the first session, the Judiciary Act of 1789 was passed by both houses and signed into law by George Washington. Uh, and it gave, or presumed to give, the uh, Supreme Court and federal courts power to strike down state law. And so, uh, so the Constitution was thwarted, even though everybody there had taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution, and they were cheating. Well, what did the public do about this? Well, I'd still like to read about that. I don't know. But I don't find stories so far of any major public outcry. And it, they should have totally been crying foul and storming the castle with their torches and pitchforks and making a fuss until that got overturned. But did they do it? Well, no, they did not. And to this day, the Supreme Court holds this power that is unconstitutional. Now, uh, so the reason I'm sharing that one example is if you say that God is thwarting the evil plans in the United States today, how long has God had since 1789 
to thwart that evil plan that the Congress had and the courts had. And there are many similar examples. So is he really thwarting evil plans? Well, you could assume so. And indeed, I'm sure many, many do. Oh, yeah, he, this, this may be an evil president, but he'll only get so far, Jack. God will stop him. Uh, okay, well, do you have any evidence of this? Maybe an announcement from an angel, from a prophet, some sort of miraculous thing going on, anything like that? I've not seen it. So again, many will appeal to mystery. Oh, well, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways, or he moves in mysterious ways. Yeah, okay. That's, uh, I, I just don't see any reason to think that. I can see the wish to think that, because, boy, doesn't that relieve a lot of trouble when I say, well, you know, I just trust, bro, that uh, God's got a plan, and, and he's working his plan for all this. Well, what if his plan is to set back and let the people of the United States do what they want to do? What if that's his plan? And if his plan is not to intercede, have you ever thought about that? <laughs> and a lot, uh, the answer would be, a, a no, actually, I haven't. <laughs> and I wish you hadn't brought it up because I don't want to think about it now. Okay. So number five, possibility, it's uh, make everybody do right. If uh, I'm not sure if I've seen the whole movie, but I've seen scenes from that uh, Liar Liar movie where uh, Jim Carrey somehow is under some spell where it is impossible for him to tell a lie. And so, uh, and of course, I think to make the movie funnier, he also, it becomes impossible for him to hold back what he's thinking. So he, he not only cannot lie, but he can't keep his mouth shut either. And so he gets himself into all manner of trouble uh, saying his true opinions about things. Uh, so uh, the idea that, well, God could make everybody do right, something like in that movie, he could take away their own free will and they just have no choice but to do what's right. And so a few examples, uh, those in office would quit violating the Constitution. They'd quit taking bribes. They'd quit giving in to threats. They would quit um, being stupid in those places where they're being stupid about things. And so God could just intervene in the quality of their thinking and fix it all, and suddenly they become exemplary officials, right? Or those in law enforcement could quit letting corruption slide, and instead they would prosecute everything as they should. And by the way, that's one of the big problems in our government now, especially in the federal government, that federal law enforcement a long time got, a time ago, got really choosy about when to enforce the law and when not. And a lot of corrupt uh, practices from the members of Congress and the executive and in the judiciary have gone unchecked. They've been not investigated, not arrested, not prosecuted uh, for their crimes. And so... If, you know, the cat's away, the mice will play. And that's one way the corruption gets so rampant. Uh, number three, those in the media would quit lying. Uh, they would quit admitting things that the public needs to know. And if you're interested in media manipulation, yes, there are some lies. 
and I don't know of any news service that does not uh, lie, at least not among the major ones that you would tend to find on TV readily. Um, But it's not just the lying. It's also what they omit, what they won't talk about. I heard, I no need to mention the name, but I heard 10 years ago, I was working one day with the radio on outside and I heard a talk show. A guy called in and said, hey, blank, uh, thanks for taking my call. Just wanted to give your um, your listeners a heads up about the dangers of fluorine or fluoride that's put in the drinking water and in toothpaste. This is really dangerous stuff. It's bad for you. The Nazis were uh, uh, studying the effects of fluoride and making people more docile and so forth. This is the kind of case the guy was making. And the host says, I'll never forget these words. Uh, he, he hangs up on the guy. Get off my show, you sick, twisted freak. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I guess we're not going to talk about fluoride on this show. Well, why not? Why not let the guy say his deal? And then if you know better, say, okay, well, thanks for sharing your deal. But hey, I know better. And here's the evidence. And rather, it was just, we're going to shut you down. We're not going to let you uh, talk about this. And this name of this host, you would definitely know who this is. So this is not some obscure thing. Uh, recently, another example, uh, one of the big news channels has on a former Speaker of the House who mentions in uh, the interview with him a uh, the name of a highly controversial bad actor who's basically an agitator and constantly stirring up trouble in the U S and they shut him down. They said, no, we're not going to talk about this person in this interview. And he's like, so you're shutting me down, you know, and, uh, that's exactly the kind of thing. What will they not talk about? Well, suppose that God just zapped everybody and suddenly they're all honest, rational, and responsible. And they talk about everything that is relevant. Right. Uh, so another one, uh, that would happen in this liar, liar scenario. The public quits voting for oath breaking and corrupt candidates. Cause if you think the public is not implicated in the corruption in the United States, you're just ignorant. The people keep supporting these, uh, these candidates. And once they become incumbents in the office, they get voted for again. The last I checked, the, uh, incumbent victory rate was like 90%. If you're going to run for reelection, 90% of the time, the incumbent wins. Those are really good odds. So uh, who's behind that? Well, the public is. Now, are there bad guys paying campaign money uh, and supporting these campaigns and cheating against better candidates? Oh, of course there are. But the public are the ones who have to vote for them, unless, of course, the voting systems are corrupt and the public's true votes are not being counted accurately and recorded, uh, reported accurately. So, and then the last one on this list of this liar, liar list uh, is simply a question. Has God ever done this once in history? Has God ever just stepped in and fixed everybody? You know, snap the fingers and hey, you're all fixed now. And not to worry about it. All the FBI people are going to uh, prosecute all the crimes they know about and not let any slide. And everybody in the federal government behaves uh right all of a sudden and all the voters behave right and all the media behaves right. Oh, and I forgot all the, all the corporations, they mind their own business and just stand on the business and go trying to be 
political, you know, social change warriors and all this kind of thing, social justice warriors, sorry. So uh, is that even feasible? Think about the whole history of Israel, this ugly, ugly, up and down, back and forth history that you read about in the Old Testament books. Did God ever once make them all do right? No, and famously so. Uh, I, I love the story. I've not reviewed it in a while, so check me on the facts here. But I believe that um, Josiah, the king, who was one of the few righteous kings in those uh, later years of the kingship, uh, on his watch, somebody discovers the law of Moses hidden away where it ought not have been. And they bring it to his attention and they have a time of national repentance over this. And uh, maybe I'm getting these stories mixed up. But then they have uh, Ezra, the scribe, come and read the law of Moses. And it says that on the day when this was to happen, he came out, he opened the scrolls or the books, whichever it says. And all the people stood up. And I've always thought about that over the years. Oh, wow. You know, that's really something that everybody would stand up out of respect for what they had found. Um, did this mean that the whole country was fixed and all of uh, jurisprudence happened right from there on forward and, and people were all responsible and honest and rational? Oh, no, it didn't. It was just a, a flash in time, just a moment of this spectacular moment when they all stood up in honor of the law. But uh, is there anything else even close to that in the Bible story? Not that I know of. So is this a feasible thing to expect? Well, God, just, just please make the, the Congress do the right thing in their vote today on this controversial subject. Is there any reason, other than just mere wishing, to believe that that is plausible? If there is, I don't see it. Okay, number six. Uh, Jesus commits election fraud. That is, uh, Jesus would uh, change the outcome of an election in order to make his favorite candidates win. And, of course, you know, he, uh, otherwise you might call it magic, but he has the power over physics. He could do whatever he wanted. Uh, he could change what the ballots say or what the computer account shows or uh, just how it's reported in the news, or he could just make everybody believe that somebody else won than who actually won, whatever, by whatever means. Um, so what's wrong with this? Well, it is fraud, is it not? Is it like God to do this? Why would he cheat? Why would he not just go back to one of the earlier things about, okay, um, this president, he's a, he's a traitor. He's out of here. I'm putting this one in instead. Why not just take over, right, rather than to cheat an election? And this one I'm, I'm very curious about because I know people pray about election outcomes all the time. Oh, God, please let so-and-so win. Well, what exactly, and we've talked about this before, what exactly are you asking 
are you asking for the will of the American people not to be honored? Or, or, you know, to go back to liar, liar, are you asking that God will manipulate people so that they will not vote for a bad candidate? And of course, in our system, often it's one bad candidate running against another. So what are you going to do? Right. But that problem aside, what exactly are you asking for? I think a lot of mindless prayers go up on this very topic. A lot. (laughs) Number seven. Uh, This is the the one I promised at the beginning, the end of the world type scenarios. And there's different uh, variations of this. You know, to some people, it's just the second coming of Jesus where some big stuff happens and the end of all life as we know it happens. And... um, you know, the big judgment and the righteous go to heaven or have heaven on earth, depending on which camp you belong to, and the unrighteous go away uh, to the lake of fire, where in some camps they are annihilated, or in other camps they stay in torture forever. Uh, and then in the Jack camp, which is the one Enoch camp, uh, there's some of each. Some are annihilated. The ones who were complete in transgressions, they get to be the eternal roommate of Satan in the agony. Uh, That's what I think uh, one Enoch shows from uh, chapter 22. And uh, that seems very plausible to me. And it's funny because uh, it erases the debate between the um, annihilationists and the What's the other word for the un-annihilationists? The live forever in eternal uh, conscious torment crowd. So I think that both sides in that are wrong when actually some of each was what was to go on. But uh, anyway, so you get this into the world thing where, okay, well, now we're going to have like heaven and it's going to be either on the earth, uh, which some people believe, or in the other world, the second world that God created, Uh, That's how I see it, and I think I find really good uh, support for that in um, 2 Esdras, which is one of the apocryphal books, especially in chapter 7, where he says, for this reason, I made two worlds and not just one, and so forth. Uh, So, And that's not the only place, mind you. It's just so very well articulated there that it's easy to start there. But the idea that basically, okay, well, this is... no pun intended, but this is a trump card. This trumps the whole system. Uh, this puts an end to, to the world as we know it, and Jesus just takes over everything. So, well, is this saving the United States? Well, no, not really. It's like dissolving the United States and supplanting it with, um, you know, an eternal kingdom of some sort like that. Uh, however, all that plays out in your mind. Uh, so, it's is this possible? Well, sure. And tons of people believe it likely even. They pray to this day, Lord, come quickly. Uh, others, of course, don't. Uh, preterists believe that the second coming has been misunderstood as far as what was supposed to happen then and that it already happened uh, back in 70 AD. Most of them will tell you. So they have a different view of the thing. And I think they're right about a lot of what they're saying, so it's definitely worth looking into that and seeing how much of it you think is right and how much is wrong. Uh, but the end-of-the-world scenario, that, well, that doesn't really fix the United States. That just sort of um, 
exempts everybody from having to deal with it any further. Okay, so that brings us uh, to number eight. I'm going to review the one through seven uh, really quickly. Uh, number one was a Korah-style judgment where they are just struck dead, all the bad guys. Number two, reject the current leaders and appoint leaders of God's own. Number three, send a prophet to expose all the wrongdoing, after which the people suddenly uh, decide no longer to support the wicked government. Uh, number four, simply to thwart the plans of the bad guys. Uh, number five, to make everybody do right. That's the liar, liar scenario. Number six, Jesus commits election fraud. Number seven, the end of the world as we know it. Uh, so here's my number eight. And this is the one I think is most likely. And yet I'll bet that a lot of people will hate this answer. Number eight, people learn from scripture and reform themselves accordingly, such that enough of them quit the sins that undermine the American society. So this is something that Jesus could do. He could uh, send a book that tells the story of these people of old such that it shines a light on the earth such that the people who live on the earth could see the exploits of those who have gone before and could learn from that and could decide whether they wanted righteousness or wickedness to rule in their lives, and then they could change their own lives accordingly. They could learn, they could grow, they could mature, they could repent, which again means to change their minds, from their former ways to their new ways. Uh, they could uh, become people of high character who would do the right thing, uh, people who would be self-sacrificial, like who? Who do you know who was self-sacrificial, who might have something to do with Christianity? Well, yes, of course, I'm talking about Jesus, right? Uh, he was also very courageous. He called it out like it was even to the uh, religious-slash-political leaders of the day. Uh, he gave some lip to uh, Pilate at his trial uh, and was quite insulting when he says to him, you have no power that God does not let you have. <laughs> you don't think uh, Pilate was um, slighted by that, then you haven't thought about it enough. So... Uh, all these things, and here's some passages to consider, just four or five. Colossians 3.16, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, uh, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So here's an idea where, and this is to the Colossians, right? So this is Paul writing to a mostly Gentile congregation, and the idea was, oh, they're supposed to have this message of Jesus, this teaching, the, the body of Jesus' teachings was supposed to dwell in them richly, not just minimally, not as some token, but they were supposed to be rich in this so that they could teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, it says, not just some, 
They're supposed to be wise in all things. And then they could do this teaching through psalms, uh, which is scripture, uh, hymns, which is the singing of psalms and other things. Uh, and I, I should withdraw that. The, the hymns would be separate from the psalms. These would be other texts put to music. Uh, and songs from the Spirit, or other versions we would call the spiritual songs, uh, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So, in other words, Jesus could have sent a book about what happened from which people could learn to let this message dwell richly in them so that they became mature enough to be good admonishers and teachers of one another with all wisdom. There's a plan. This is how Jesus could save the United States if enough people bought into that, right? Imagine having a bunch of voters who say, look, you give me a choice of two evil guys, I'm not going to vote for either one. You give me um, some sort of entitlement from the government that the government is not entitled to give because it's not authorized in the Constitution, well, I'm not going to take it. No, thank you. Right? Imagine people with that character. How about Luke 6, verse 45? This is Jesus speaking. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. <laughs> There's that final preposition that uh, I cannot say that or write that without uh, feeling the twinge of uh, that ain't right. So anyway, uh, I think this is the ESV that did that. That's a bit curious to me but I don't mean to get off in the weeds on that. The idea here that Jesus expected there would be among his followers good people who would have good things stored up in their heart and they would bring those good things out. So they're constantly producing good things. What if people would learn from Scripture and learn about the goodness of Jesus and decide, hey, you know, I want to be like that myself. I only want to do what's good. I won't do what's bad. I'll have nothing to do with it. Here's another one. 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 16 and 17. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us by his grace, uh, oh, and by his grace, gave us eternal encouragement uh, and good hope. And then here we get to the actual verb. Uh, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So imagine if uh, Jesus sent a book about the exploits of these godly people and their failures and their repentance from it and so forth, and that all this was supposed to encourage the hearts of believers and to strengthen them in every good deed and every good word. So this was supposed to be a thing to build them up and to encourage them and making better people out of them. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. This is Paul writing, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What if Jesus 
sent a book. And the people who study that book and who read it and who ponder it and examine it and compare idea to idea and put them together and understand how they fit. What if people like that would be transformed into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory? Meaning that they don't plateau for 10 years without growing. They're constantly growing and becoming more glorious like Jesus himself. What if that were his plan? I'm going to make a society of people who are like me. And then finally, I had one more, uh, Matthew 5, verse 16. This is Jesus speaking in the, uh, the famous Beatitudes section. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So he's saying here that they are to be exemplary. They are to be doing true good deeds, you know, shining their light in this way, and that others would see this and think, wow, that's really great, and God is to be glorified. What if? Well, I'm sure I could go on and on with passages like this. I thought these would be sufficient, uh, especially after 40 other episodes of this podcast about living in the image and such. Folks, I think this is it. I think this is the plan. I think this is how Jesus is most likely to save the United States. It's by people in the United States reading the Bible and whatever else you consider Scripture, and I know there's going to be lots of contentious argument about that. But what if you were to actually read it and decide, I am going to be like Jesus? I think God is good. I think Jesus is good. I think Satan is bad. I think a lot of the characters in the Bible were bad because they took after Satan and bought into his bad thinking. And so I don't want to be like that. I do want to be like the opposite side, the God and Jesus. What if people decided that? Then what kind of Americans would they be? Question, could they turn down temptation if they were like Jesus? When the federal government says, hey, we'll give you tax credit for this or that, uh, could they say, no, no thanks, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I don't need to cheat the system. I don't need to be bribed. When the federal government wants to do some handout, oh, here, we'll give you, um, uh, well, better be careful about this one. We'll give you something to which the Constitution does not entitle you. Well, could a person who's like Jesus turn down that temptation and say, no, thank you? Hey, we'll send federal money to your state after the hurricane came through. No, thank you. Not your job. And when you do that job that's not your job, all kinds of corruption comes with it. Uh, hey, uh, we, let's see, Jimmy Carter in 78 or 79 signs the Department of Education into law. Uh, nowhere to be found in Article 1, Section 8 among the powers of Congress. And so it's implemented in 1980. 
and uh, schools were not awesome back then. But uh, since then, since the Fed started pumping money into the states, guess who has control over the curriculum more and more? It's the federal government. And guess what's happened to the outcome of education since 1980? Well, it's gotten worse and worse. And this is no secret. Uh, so what state is going to say, well, no, thank you, federal government. You can keep all the money, the bajillions of dollars that you pump out for education. You can keep all of that. We'll do it ourselves, just like we did for the first couple hundred years of our existence as a state. No, thank you. We're good. Well, could a Christian withstand the temptation for that money? Well, I would think so. Jesus withstood the temptation uh, to be given all the nations of the world from Satan. And incidentally, he was going to be given all the nations of the world already as part of doing his job for God. Uh, so Satan was promising him some early thing without, of course, having to go to the cross to get it. And so it was quite an intricate ploy. Uh, but Jesus said, no, thanks. I'm good. Suppose that um, to save a country, people needed to be self-sacrificial. They needed to have the courage to put it on the line, to say what was true. You know, I love the Ephesians passage, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Suppose that the country needed people who would tell the truth and say it out loud, even though there may be repercussions to that. Well, could somebody like Jesus do that? Well, of course. He, he was the big truth teller, the biggest, I say the biggest one of all time. Well, it's funny because he was behind the prophets saying what the prophets had previously said. You know, he's part of that whole team that's inspiring them uh, as they speak. So Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So could a Christian, a real one, a follower of Jesus, somebody who's like Jesus, somebody who is like that image in ever-increasing glory, they're more like it now than they were last year, could somebody like that also bring hope and goodness and wisdom and truth-telling and courage into our society? Why, yes, they could. So I hope you see where I'm going with this. Not only is this one, this number eight, not only is it possible and plausible, but I think it was the very plan. And this would not only save the United States, it would save any country in trouble. If you have enough people who are willing to live like this, to think like this, to behave like this, then it's going to have an influence on your culture. You know, the, uh, with the Revolutionary War, a lot of uh, Americans were not wanting to go to war against Britain. A lot were still sympathizers with Britain and loyalists and such, and they did not want to do it. Well, once the atrocities started and the, and the disarming and the battles started, more and more of them came around to say, oh, okay, it's time we have to fight or we're just going to get creamed here. Uh, but, uh, was it 100% of the Americans who said, yeah, let's do it, let's rebel? No. 
it was a very small number. And yet they carried enough clout. They were opinion leaders. They were community leaders enough to get other people to see the light and come along. And if they had not, then would the United States have come out of uh, seceding from Britain? No. It took great courage to do what they did. You know, their thing, their famous line was, uh, how did it go? Uh, We had better hang together or else we will surely hang separately, which, of course, is a play on words. Um, I trust you understand that. Hang doesn't mean the first, the same thing both times. So where are you going to get that kind of courage? Where somebody like Patrick Henry says, (laughs) in the modern vernacular, vernacular, dude, Give me liberty or give me death. Or, or, or <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was remembering the, the words of uh, FSU football coach Bill Peterson, who said a lot of uh, wacky things. And I think his version of that speech was um, something like, men, when it, if it gets tough out there, just remember the eternal words of uh, Henry Patrick. Uh, Let me live or kill me. I think that's how he put it. So anyway, pardon me, I didn't have that one written down. I hope I didn't butcher it too badly. So where do you get a guy like that? Who said, look, I'm, I'm all in here. We're going to um, we're gonna fix this. We're going to do the right thing. I'm not going to put up with the abuse of liberty. I'm not going to put up with the tyranny. I'd rather be dead, right? Well, where do you get that kind of courage? Where do you find this attitude of, no, you can promise me the whole world that's not rightfully mine uh, to get it the wrong way, and I'm not going to take it. Rather, I'll be content with what is mine, even if I get killed for it. Where can you learn that kind of attitude? Well, from Jesus, of course. We should talk soon uh, about the whole question, the eternal question of, well, what should Christians do in time of civil unrest or of civil war or rebellion or secession or, you know, whatever this kind of thing? And, you know, should we should we fight? You know, should we run? Should we just have church on Sunday and whatever it takes to see that I'm there on Sunday? You know, what should be the attitude? Uh, and those are very uh, good questions. I was going to say they're difficult. Well, they're not. They could be difficult, <laughs> so it depends on how you approach them. And uh, But I'll just say this for now. Jesus has lots of one-liners that confuse people and that seem contradictory to other one-liners. You know, like when he says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my uh, disciples would fight. Oh, okay. Well, uh, how should we take that? One person says, oh, well, see, therefore... We should all be pacifists and we don't fight over anything. Well, what about kingdoms that are not the kingdom he was talking about? Because Jesus' kingdom is not like Ireland or Zimbabwe or Brazil. So if you live in one of those places and there's some kind of war, there's tyranny from the government or something, does does this mean you should just not fight because... You only belong to one kingdom or you only have aspirations for one kingdom. Oh, I'm a Christian. That trumps everything. I don't have to be a responsible citizen of my own country because the way I view Christianity, it trumps everything. 
Well, I don't see it that way, but I know a lot of people do. They say, oh, well, all that other stuff, that's like civilian affairs. That's worldly stuff. We just don't do that. Like, oh, how interesting. You drive on paved roads that were paved by the country you live in, but you hold no responsibility for that. And you vote, but you don't vote well. You vote for oath breakers who are already known to be oath breakers most of the time. And yet you don't bear responsibility for that. Hmm. So, so the big question, of course, is, oh, well, did Jesus intend to tell the Christians, look, from here on out, as far as you're concerned, only one kingdom exists. And you're to have nothing to do with any other kingdom or nation. Well, that is, in fact, not what he told them even in that day. Did he not tell them to pay taxes to Caesar? So how you can't have it both ways. He was acknowledging that there, the worldly governments did have some role to play. And yet, here at the same time, we've got this other kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, and, you know, what all to be made of that is quite the large subject. But you know what I'm talking about. And so they had to handle both. It's not like the moment they got baptized or converted or however you think that's supposed to go. It's that they were just teleported out of this world into that second world, into that heavenly Jerusalem, that holy city. No, they had to stay here. Well, that's not fair, bro. Uh, well, that's God's plan. So did this absolve them from any responsibility to be good citizens? Well, no, I don't think it did. Very interesting. I'll share this here uh, because it pops into my mind. There is a word in Greek in ancient times, and I'm just shooting from the hip here from memory, but they had a word to describe the person who, living in the culture, decided not to be concerned with matters of state. And as it happens, this word, you would recognize it today. <laughs> it is the Greek word, uh, and pardon my Greek, but idiotes or something like this. It's where we get the word idiot. <laughs> and how interesting is that? How ironic. The idea that this word idiot uh, started from what they would call somebody who took a notion to just not care about matters of state and the body politic in which he lived. And so you have to wonder about that uh, as you read the Bible. And of course, there's a lot of room for interpretations and for interpretational views and so forth. Uh, however, the main point of this uh, talk today is that the very thing that is the most biblically solid way for Jesus to save the United States is the very way that the fewest believers in Jesus will be excited about. And that is, look, go learn the Bible and grow up and learn how to be like Jesus. And if you don't like that, would you please quit lying and telling everybody that you love Jesus? Because you don't. <laughs> you just don't. <laughs> and you're a liar. Now, you may be deceived about what Jesus is like. Well, this is one reason we have a Bible. So you could actually go read 
and process the words yourself. Just this last week, I had this thought. I should have uh, written it down so I'd get it right, but it's something like this, that a great mind can have great ideas and can write those ideas down in great words, but anybody else can come along and read those words and still not have the great thoughts run through his or her head that inspired those words in the first place. They can even think, wow, these are great words, but they're still not thinking the thoughts that inspired the words in the first place. They don't, they have not adopted that belief, that attitude, that disposition, whatever was behind it, they're not getting it. And yet they read the words. Well, oh boy, is that like what goes on in church? Because you read this thing every week and, well, do you know what it means? No. <laughs> well, why do you read it every week? Well, we just do. We say it out loud all together. Okay. Like the Lord's Prayer, for example. You know, people not thinking through what did this mean when it was said? Um, would Jesus still teach this today as something to be, uh, you know, prayed or not? Oh, I don't know. I never thought about it. Well, exactly. You never thought about it. And so just because you've got this Bible does not mean that you understand it. Uh, I understand some of it. I don't understand all of it. And this is why, like I, I promised you an episode on, or a second episode on baptism. And I still hadn't gotten to that, partly because I've been so busy, but partly because I realized, you know what, if I'm going to be like super honest with myself, uh, while I'm sure I understand a lot about baptism into Jesus, but I don't understand it all. And uh, so obviously I'm not ready to teach it all as if I understand it. Now we can certainly talk about it more and I hope to do that. Uh, but I got to be honest, as I read every passage about it, I realize I don't know how to put all these puzzle pieces together in a way that makes cogent sense throughout. And so I need more work on that. And this is funny, after going to church for so many years of my life, how would I not already know these answers? Well, it's because we live in a meme culture, a hearsay culture that simply repeats junk without really understanding what the stuff means. And it's, again, it's that fantastic quote from Don Marquis. If you make people think they're thinking, they will love you. But if you really make them think, they will hate you. Well, why is that? Well, it's because we live in this cognitive miser culture. And not only the, the cognitive uh, miserliness, but the moral miserliness, where we're just not willing to spend very much on keeping high morality. Well, it was just a little cheat. You know, it's not like I stole money. <laughs> yeah, but you still cheated at a game and won at the expense of others who did not cheat. Right. So uh, we tend to be like that. And very few, it seems, figure out that, hey, that's not like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus, like the real deal. So uh, in a country where a bajillion people go to church and claim to be Christians, how come so few are being like Jesus? How come so few are good statesmen or stateswomen if uh, 
if statesman doesn't cover both sexes, but what, uh, what's going on? Why can so few go to public office and resist the temptation to cheat uh, for riches in return or for threats of uh, bribery uh, or a blackmail or other extortion? Why do so few succeed in office without becoming uh, corrupted themselves? I submit it's because they're not like Jesus. They're not the kind of Christians that Jesus had in mind, and he does not dwell on them richly. Uh, his message, his, his teaching does not dwell on them. That's what I think is going on. So uh, it's a very radical view that, oh, read the book, learn the book, put into practice what's in the book. You know, and people think, oh, Jack, well, what about the spirit? You, you haven't talked about the spirit this whole podcast. See, this isn't right. Well, you don't think the Bible is the work of the spirit of God? See, I can turn those tables on you. How come we can talk about the Bible, the whole, not the whole, but in this last big portion of this podcast episode, and you don't once think, oh, he's talking about the words of the Spirit. You see, I got you there because you're thinking the way you've learned in the churches where, no, it's all about the, I, I had this warm feeling and I felt moved to do this or I, God put a burden on my heart against doing that other thing. That's what you think it is. Yeah, but Jesus gave you a book that you have to read, and then you have to apply your mind to what it says or not. <laughs> you can be mindless, and many are, right? But you could read the book, and you could think through the book, and you could learn from it, and you could change yourself accordingly by repenting. You know, this the renewing of your minds. Talking about Romans 12, verse 1. You could have learned all that stuff by now, but if you're just a hearsay practitioner, well, you just repeat stuff you hear from the pulpit. And you don't really think about it because you're told that just repeating it is enough. So you don't need the good deeds. You don't need to be competent to teach others and all that, you see. So that's what time I think it is that we are in this crisis of having people of high character in our country. And boy, if we had them, even if 5% were people of high character, they would quickly become the opinion leaders for lots of people who are not uh, people of high character. Uh, a lot of people are going to yield to uh, what the pastor says. I, I wrote some posts in the past week or so saying, um, gee, you know, a lot of people believe a lot of things and never really check it out. And predictably, one friend of mine said, yeah, boy, you're right about that. And I so am, I'm so grateful for the pastors at my church. <laughs> I'm like, well, your church is probably one of the ones I'm talking about. But the assumption is, oh, well, my pastors, my elders, they're, they're really with it, and I can trust what they say. Well, how come you're not reading the book for yourself and becoming a student of it yourself? Does the Word of Christ, does the Word of the Spirit of Christ uh, hold so little value in your mind that you don't think it's worth becoming a good student of it? So that's my point. That's how I think Jesus could save the United States in a way that's plausible, that's already on the record, 
uh, that does work. People do read the Bible and change themselves when they want to. And so it does work. It is very powerful. Ideas are powerful. Jesus was the logos. That's, we would say in English, the word. Well, okay, but that's pretty thin uh, because logos mean, meant so much more in Greek. It, it's the, the root of the word logic. It's the, the thinking, the reasoning, the sound wisdom, all this sort of wrapped up together in one big thought. And uh, people get scared of that because they think this idea of logic, well, that's, that's worldly. That's like Greek stuff. That's not Hebrew stuff. You know, there's all kind of just crazy half thoughts that people believe with all that. So Jesus was this thing, this logos. And it was supposed to have an effect on people and it was powerful. And it changed his apostles into men who were willing to die for the cause and to hold it out purely for the rest of their lives. And that's what we should be. And that's what we could be. And that's what so few ever are going to discover at church. They might discover it in spite of the church. But so many of the churches are nowhere near this kind of paradigm that, yes, each and every member here is supposed to become a powerful, strong, mature person who does good works. You're not going to hear that in most churches, uh, not consistently, and you're a lot of people will be coddled as exceptions to that. Well, we don't expect too much from Billy because, you know, he's just not a very gifted person. Well, holy cow, he's got the Bible. Is that not a gift? Can he not read the mind of God in the Bible? If not there, then from where? From listening to your pastor? Funny. I think Billy should read the Bible and become like Jesus in ever-increasing glory year to year to year. You think he should listen to the pastor and stay just like he is while at least Billy's here, praise God. You see, I think the bar should be set a lot higher than the average American believer thinks. And again, I don't talk about believers in other countries because I don't know anything about their culture. So, uh, as you can see, I'm pretty excited about this idea and how just utterly stupid it is to settle just for the hearsay culture when you've got the Bible. If you don't know what's special about the book, it's because, number one, either you don't know what's in it, or number two, you don't care about godly things. If you do care, and if you know what's in it, then you're thinking, wow, this book is really something. And there's a ton to talk about here. So uh, that's what's missing from our American culture. If you want God to fix it, if you're praying that God will fix it, well, are you letting him fix you? And this is nothing new. People, you know, atheists will say, be the change you want to see in the world. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. They're right about that. Do it. Well, who can help you do it? Jesus can. And so that's my message. I'd better cut it off here. Have no idea how long I've been going. But uh, hey, you know, that's how it goes. You know this by now. Thanks for joining in.